Revelation chapter 3 is where we are. As we uh, continue to make our way through the book of Revelation, and we've been looking at the seven churches. Uh, and it's, as I thought about it this week, one of the things that I, I was thinking was so cool is, is here we have the seven churches, and as I've talked about, they represent all the churches throughout all time, right? There are seven categories that every church and actually every Christian uh, falls into at least one of these seven categories. But with all of it, here's the Lord actively working within the church, right? That he isn't just uh, a teacher that was gone or even our Lord that had ascended into heaven and was now doing his own thing there. He's involved with the church. He's pursuing the church. He's, he's, he's bringing correction. He's bringing encouragement. And he's letting him know, look, I'm right here with you the whole time. I'm right here to get you back on track. And so we have, uh, first of all, we looked at the church of Ephesus. If you remember, the church of Ephesus was a church that was really solid when it came to biblical truth. Uh, they, they were able to call out people that were false teachers and liars and, and, and really kind of make an example of them, but they lacked love. That what they did was not representing the love of Jesus Christ. The church of Smyrna, which was doing well, there was a small church that was struggling, but they were fearful of the things of the future. And the Lord had to warn them, don't fear the things that are about to come. Pergamos was a church that had gotten into compromise. They had backed off on teaching the Word of God clearly, and they'd started to let false teaching into their church. Thyatira had gone even further, and they were letting false teachers have a place of leadership in their church. Sardis was busy, was comfortable, and was dead. Nothing they did counted for eternity. And with all of these, it's important to remember, man, they, they started well. These churches were on track, loving the Lord, serving the people, and they, they slowly went off track. And, and again, it's not too late for them. The Lord's trying to bring them back. Last week, we looked at the church of Philadelphia. And the church of Philadelphia is the one we all want to be, right? We want our church to be like them. We want our lives to be like them because they, there's no correction brought. The Lord just like encourages them. Again, they're a church that doesn't have a lot. They're not a big church. They're not powerful. They've been through some difficult times. But they, the Lord says that though they have a little strength, which kind of tells us where they're at, but he sets a door before them, an open door before them to do even more, to do more ministry, to, to reach people that don't know Jesus Christ, to reach the lost. And uh, we don't know exactly what that door was, but the Lord tells them that he's the one that opens those doors. And once he opens them, no one can, clo can close them. And when he closes the door, no one can open it. He has full authority over every door, every opportunity, every lock, every key. And uh, so today, we come to the last of the seven churches, uh, Laodicea. And uh, it's not in a good place, <laughs> like a lot of the churches. As we look at the, the church of Laodicea, uh, I think maybe more than the rest, 
While, while I think that all the churches we've looked at so far, we go like, okay, I, I've been to that church. I, I've, I know where that church is. Or, or even as we look at our own lives, we can go, well, I see those attributes or those negative things or hopefully even some of the positive things in my own life. I think the church of Laodicea probably describes the church at large in America today. And so I think it has a lot of application for us um, and for the time that we live in. So let's pray one more time and we'll get into chapter 3. Lord God, as always, we want to hear from you. We thank you that you are alive, that you are active, that you want to be involved in this church and in us individually. And I pray that our ears would be tuned in to hear you today. Our hearts would be open to receive. And Holy Spirit, that you would take your word and that you would teach it to us and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So chapter 3, we're going to be starting in verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. And I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. As with the other churches, when the Lord says to the angel of the church of, right? That the word angel, we always think of like heavenly angel or uh, angelic being, but it really just means messenger, And so the letter, or this part of the letter, is written to the messenger or the leader or pastor of the church of Laodicea. And uh, again, with each one of the churches, Jesus has, has pointed to the things of their history within the city that they're in to kind of relate it to the church. Uh, for example, you know, he talks to the church at Sardis and he says, keep watch. Well, if you remember, the city of Sardis had a, had a history of not keeping watch. That they'd been conquered multiple times because they were overconfident and lazy and they did not keep watch. And so he tells the church, keep watch, right? So he's relating the things of the city they're in to the church itself. And probably more than any of the others, Laodicea has more parallels to the city they're in than any of the others that Jesus points to. And I think that actually tells us something, that they are a church that has been almost completely influenced by their city instead of the other way around. Instead of a church coming into a community and loving on the people and giving out Jesus and and taking a stand for what's, what's right and wrong in a loving way, they are a church... It looks exactly like the city looks. There's very little difference at all. Uh, Laodicea was famous in its day for a couple different things. Uh, First of all, they were famous for for being very wealthy. Uh, And we've seen some of the other cities and talked about some of the other cities that they had, not all of them, but many of them were, were wealthy trade cities and stuff like that. Well, even among those, Laodicea was considered, man, the it was the the best, the richest, the most wealthy, right? It was Eagleton. Everyone else was Pawnee. And 
It's okay. You, not everybody got that. It's all right. But it, it's, the, it's the wealthy place, right? It's, it's famous for being wealthy. And, and the reasons, or many of the reasons for their wealth, is because of they had very specific exports that left from that city or were created within the city. Uh, one of them was a very fine black cloth that was rare. And it was b- being sent out all over the known world. This very soft wool that was black and like nothing else. The other thing that was being exported all over the known world was this eye salve that they created there. And they, it had the reputation of just curing everything. Didn't matter what it was. Didn't have to be your eyes. You put the stuff in your eye and man, you were going to be better. And, and it wasn't true, but everybody believed it. It was a huge export. Uh, and that was kind of connected with something else that the city was famous for, was that it had a large medical school there. Um, the temple to the god, the, the Greek god Asclepius was there. And there were, there were other temples. In fact, we've looked at another temple of Asclepius in one of the other cities. But this one, again, was the biggest, was the best. There uh, wasn't just a hospital that was attached to that temple, but they kind of prided themselves on being a research center. Which again, it's not like we think of research. It's not like even we think of medicine. If you remember when we talked about the Temple of Asclepius before and their medical facility, one of their main things that they would do is that if anything you had wrong with you, they'd stick you in a dark room all night and the room was filled with snakes. And in the morning, everyone was better, right? I'm cured. I'm not going back in that room. And and so this was the kind of medicine that they had. This was the kind of cures that they had. But again, that they were very, they thought they were just cutting edge in their day. And there were lots of temples uh, within this city of Laodicea. Uh, there was a couple that were dedicated to Caesar, uh, which we've seen with the other cities usually brought great persecution because there was this like, we've got to make sure everybody's worshiping Caesar and the Christians weren't. And so it would bring this persecution. But there's no mention of that here in Laodicea. No persecution at all. And again, this tells us that the church looked just like the city, had blended right in. Uh, the other thing, by all the areas, all the cities around them that Laodicea was known for, was being arrogant and prideful. So yeah, they were rich. Yeah, they had lots of great exports. Yeah, they had this great educational medical facility, but they're arrogant and they're prideful. And and an example of really a combination of their wealth and their pride was in 60 AD, an earthquake hit and just about leveled the city completely. And Rome offered to rebuild the city, that Rome was going to pay for everything. And the, the leaders of Laodicea went, no, we don't need you. We don't need your money. We'll do it all ourselves. And they paid for everything themselves. Again, to prove their wealth. Um, now, the city had a major weakness. And this is interesting, because while they had this pride, they had this money, they had all this arrogance, there was one thing that caused them to be absolutely weak, and that was their water source. So their water came from a hot spring six miles away and was channeled by an open-air aqueduct all the way to the city, right? What that means is if you wanted to hold the whole city hostage, all you had to do is stop their water. It's the only source they had. And so anytime a mob would decide, well, let's go take on Laodicea or some 
group, they just blocked the water system. And it caused the leadership within Laodicea to be very good and very fast at making compromise with those people. And so the other thing that they were famous with on top of their pride and their arrogance is having this spineless compromise when it came to conflict. Difficulty arose, people started to push, and they're like, hey, 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 we can get along, and they would just compromise on everything. And again, unfortunately, we see the same thing in the church. In verse 15, Jesus says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were hot or cold. So then because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. He tells them, I know your works. And we've seen that in almost all the other churches. But this time it's negative. In fact, he's saying, I know your works and they reveal everything about you. Your works show me you are neither hot nor cold. You are complacent. You don't care about anything. That's the idea of being lukewarm. And it's interesting to me because, again, Jesus is pointing to so many things in their city, right? So their water source was lukewarm. It came from a hot spring. It came all the way to their city, and it was disgustingly lukewarm when it got there. Not refreshing, It wasn't hot enough to be hot. It wasn't cold enough to be cold. It was lukewarm. And he goes, and that's you guys. Lukewarm. They had become complacent. There was no passion. There was no excitement. There was no joy. There was no growth. In fact, it's my guess that those things were considered immature. And and I've talked with people like this, where... They're just lukewarm. They have no opinion on anything. And when you're excited about something, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, I remember being excited about stuff, too. You know, I remember being immature like that. I remember being young like that and caring about things. But now I've become lukewarm, right? (laughs) And so those things were probably frowned upon. Um, These people were not fired up for the Lord. And that's the idea of the word hot. In fact, later on, he'll use the word zealous, and it means a burning hot zeal, right? So the word in this case, as he speaks about you're not hot, it's a positive. The idea is being positive. It's being fired up for the Lord. You're not excited about the things of the Lord. You're not excited about Jesus. You're not excited about salvation. But neither are they against those things either. Neither are they opposed to them. They're not cold against them, right? Well, Whatever you want to do. I remember sharing with this person one time. They just agreed with me about everything. And he, it was impossible to get anywhere. No matter what I'd say, he'd go, I agree with that. Oh, I agree with that. And, and he was just, and really what he was saying is, I don't care about that. Oh, I don't care about that. And because he was so lukewarm, he just couldn't get anywhere. Right? And that's the idea of what's going on here in this church. And that's why, you know, Jesus says, I wish you were cold or hot. I wish you were one or the other. I wish you loved me or I wish you hated me. But you do neither. You're just lukewarm, complacent. A person who's fired up is easy to encourage. A person's excited about anything that you can kind of meet them in that excitement, even if you don't know exactly what they're excited about, and go, well, yeah, I've been excited about stuff. Yeah, I can, you know, and you kind of can come alongside them. 
A person that is opposed, fighting against the things of God, to them there's the chance of repentance. To the person that fights against what the Lord is doing in their life, the fight is on, right? It's proof of life. There's something going on there. But the one that doesn't care either way is almost impossible to do anything with. And again, I love the fact that when it comes to Jesus, he loved to be around sinners. Think about the people that he gathered into groups and even his disciples. It wasn't the religious. It wasn't the righteous. It was the least and the last. That the people that loved to hear Jesus were the prostitutes and the thieves and the tax collectors and the common and the ordinary. And Jesus was accused by the religious leaders as being the friend of sinners. And I love that Jesus is like, and that's true, right? Because again, to those who who have fought against the things of God, man, when they come face to face with the reality of the love of Jesus Christ, man, it's life-changing. Changes us for eternity. Now, who did Jesus have the most difficulty with? The self-righteous and the religious leaders. Why? Because they thought they had arrived. They thought they had reached the goal of being righteous. That they had done enough to be worthy. And in the same way, Laodicea believes that they have arrived. They have need of nothing. The church at Laodicea believes that because they have money and they have power or whatever that is that they have, they have need of of nothing. And I think we make the mistake, even though we, it's, we know it isn't true, but we still come back to making that mistake, that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. God blesses those who are good, and he curses those who are bad. And so when a church gets that idea, they go, well, hey, look, we got money in the bank, and things are good. We must be good. Not so. In fact, something has been desperately lost in this church. They have lost their sense of spiritual poverty. They have lost the need for Jesus. They say in their hearts, we have need of nothing. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Man, there's something good to know your need. There's something healing and powerful to go, I need Jesus more now than I needed him the day I got saved. I need him more. The more I I understand who I am and who he is, I need him more, right? There's a spiritual poverty, and that sounds like a real negative thing, but it's not. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that go, God, I need you. There's so much I don't understand. There's so much I can't comprehend. There's so many things I don't know what I'm doing. I need you, right? That's the poor in spirit. The other thing that I think, and again, thinking about the disciples, thinking about us, is who does Jesus call? He doesn't call the righteous. He doesn't call the holy. He doesn't call the, the, those that think they have arrived. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. He has chosen us to put to shame the wise and the strong. And I, I love how Paul just says, just look around. <laughs> just look around yourself right now. You see any wise? You see any mighty? You see any noble? Either do I, right? It's us. The base, the, the, the lowly, the little, you know, all these things. Yet God has chosen these things that he will get the glory and not us. And that's where this switch is taking place with the church of Laodicea. Is that they have begun to take credit for the gifts that they've been given. And that's when everything will change for us individually as well. See, God is glad to pour out blessing on our lives. He is glad to pour out giftings upon our lives. But the minute we start taking credit for them, we are taking the glory of them. And we are somehow thinking that we have arrived. Whether those are physical provisions like money or a house or whatever it might be, a job, or whether it's spiritual giftings. I mean, I've seen this over the years. Pastors that I have known, guys that... You can tell that God has poured out a gift upon them. And it's funny because <laughs> maybe it's just me kind of being a jerk, but I, I will listen to these guys and go, why is anybody listening to this person? You know, that there's something about them that I'm just like, I, I don't know why everybody's just flocking to hear them. Well, it's, it's the power of God, right? I mean, it's the Holy Spirit upon them. He's bringing people to them. And I've seen those same people start to take credit for it. And the Lord just removes his hand. Right? And it's heartbreaking because the anointing that was upon them, the gifting that was given to them, they started going, well, yeah, well, it's because I'm such a great speaker. It's because I'm so powerful in delivering the message. And, and you just watch them go downhill from there right? because they think that they have arrived somehow. Again, and I, I got to be careful. You know, as I started putting this Bible study together, I started going down this track, and I have to be careful because I can get very fired up about this. But as I look at the church of Laodicea, as I said in the beginning, what I see is unfortunately too much of the church in our country. We have need of nothing. We are wealthy. We are full. We are all over social media. We've got followings. We got likes. We got clicks. We got everything we think we need. Lord, we're good. We got it. And unfortunately, we also see this spineless compromise where church leadership are bowing down to the bullies of social media, literally bowing down before them, saying, you're right, we're wrong. That is spineless compromise. That is the church of Laodicea. And Jesus says in verse 14, as he describes himself, remember, as he describes himself with each one of the, to each one of the churches, it's what they need to remember. 
It's what they need to understand. So in verse 14, he says, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now the Amen, that's a word we use all the time. Every time we pray, Jesus' name, Amen. Right? And too often people kind of see that, or maybe they don't think of it this way, but can throw it on like it's the magic word at the end of a prayer. Oh, yeah, Amen. Right? Yeah. Throw the Amen on there, we're going to get it. Amen just means so be it, or it is done. And what we're doing when we put amen at the end of a prayer is we're simply saying, Jesus, in your name, which literally means in your character, let it be done. So be it according to your will. That's the idea. And that's, that's all the amen means, right? But as Jesus brings it out here, it's with this absolute finality of I am the amen, I am the so be it. I am the final word in all things. Not that he has it. He is it. He is the final word. And it's, a, it's in opposition or it's in contrast to this wishy-washy attitude that the church at Laodicea has, that they won't take a stand on anything. They compromise everything in order that they might still be full, Right? He's saying, I do take a stand. I am the final word on all things. He says that he is the true witness. Again, it's with that absolute finality, that there's nothing to add, that what he says is is absolutely true. He doesn't leave anything out. Even when it stings, he speaks the truth. And he says he is the beginning of the creation. People have taken that and twisted it, and they've said, oh, okay, so Jesus was created at the beginning. That's not what that means. In fact, the word beginning isn't the best translation. From the original language, it would be better to use the word the source or the origin, that he is the source of the creation of God. He is the origin of the creation of God. And again, he's saying, I'm not complacent. I'm not standing by and letting people just do whatever they want. He's the final word in all of these things. Again, many churches and Christians believe that our goal or our our thing, and this has actually come out a lot, you know, with the whole COVID thing, do you wear a mask, you don't wear a mask, you go into public, do you hug people, you don't hug people, all these things. I've seen a lot of people posting going, well, if you're a Christian, you're going to do all this stuff perfectly. You're going to just constantly do whatever you're told to do all the time because Christians should be tolerant. And the idea is tolerance at all costs. That is not a biblical truth. Jesus was not tolerant at all costs. Jesus started fights. Jesus overturned tables. Jesus burnt bridges. Now again, that doesn't give us the freedom to go out and cause a bunch of trouble. But there is the place to go, enough's enough. And it isn't about just being tolerant of what everybody wants to do or everybody says is right. We're not called to bow down before the bullies. Jesus takes a stand for what is right and what is wrong. And the stand that he took, again, I think it's important to point out, he never had to take that stand against sinners. He always had to take the stand against the self-righteous. Those are the bridges that got burned. Those are the conflicts that took place. Those were the tables that got overturned. 
were those of the self-righteous. And again, the church and those same people, then and now, verse 17, Jesus puts his finger right on the problem. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. I've arrived. I, I, I have all I need. I, I'm full. I'm, I'm content. I just, I'm good to go. I don't need anything. We're fine. And everything they're looking to is in their own ability. But the faithful and true witness says, you don't even know how bad it is. You don't even know. And that's the part that, as, as I study this and read this, that kind of just gives me chills every time. Because they say, we have everything. We've arrived. And Jesus says, you don't even know. You are blind and miserable and naked. You don't even know. You're not even aware of it. You are completely wrong about everything. Again, he is always faithful. He's always true. The source of all creation and everything that is in it, including every gift, everything that's given, And he's calling these people. He's reminding us, man, we need him more every day. Verse 18 goes on. It says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. To him who, is, who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. After telling them where they've gone wrong, he now, and I love that he says it so clearly, so straightforwardly, right? Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't soft sell things. He doesn't go, well, guys, you know, you could maybe work at this a little bit harder. He's just like, this is it. Here's the problem, right? He puts his finger right on what it is. But now he brings them to the answer. And like we've seen with the other churches, it's easier than we make it. It isn't some hard, complex, climb up the hill, on your knees, do all these prayers, all this stuff to prove your worthiness. It's so much easier than we make it. And he says, um, again, pointing to what they were famous for, right? Remember, they were famous for wealth, this eye salve and clothing, and the accusation against them is that you're poor, blind, and naked. The things you think you have, you don't have. And now he says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. And that's really the answer. I counsel you to buy from me. Stop buying from the world. Stop buying from your own strength. Stop buying everything that everybody tries to sell you because it will all come up empty. Buy from me. Again, such a simple answer. But it's harder to do than we, than, 
we think. Easy to say, hard to do, right? Because it requires that we humble ourselves and we change our direction, right? I always think about, I think the Apostle Paul is probably just the best example of this. Guy's all fired up, man. He's chasing after Christians. He's throwing them in jail. Watch Stephen get put to death, all these things. And then Jesus meets him on the road, and this is his moment to be hot or cold, right? And he's struck blind on the road. And for the next three days, I just picture him going, I have been wrong about everything. I have been absolutely wrong. And he humbles himself, right? And for each and every one of us, we are required to humble ourselves, admit that we've been going the wrong direction, and then change that direction. And again, that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing even when we know the Lord. How many times, gentlemen, have you been driving and, and someone, your wife, says, you were supposed to turn back there? No, I wasn't. And you keep driving. And you drive and you drive and you keep on driving going, she was right. At some point, you must humble yourself but you've already gone a long way, right? I'm just going to keep on going the wrong way for the rest of my life rather than say, yeah, you were right. I was wrong. But that's what we do spiritually, right? People will go, I, I know this is the wrong way, but look how much distance I've traveled. <laughs> the wrong way. Turn around. Again, it's, it's simple to understand but it's hard to do because it requires us to go, I was wrong. Lord, you were right. I was wrong. And he says, to buy the gold that is refined in the fire. I love that because the idea, it isn't just riches. It isn't just wealth. It is the true riches that come from a trial. It's been refined by heat and by pressure and by difficulty. And on the other side of it, something beautiful. And the Lord's saying, you come to me for true riches that are eternal, not just temporary. It says, and white garments that you might be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Laodicea was famous for black cloth, black clothing. And in contrast, and he's talked about white robes before, but I think, again, it's a cool contrast to what they were famous for to say, stop buying what the world's selling. You come to me for purity. Come to me for holiness. That he clothes us in his righteousness. Not us doing it ourselves, somehow earning it, but put off the worldly garments and robes and put on his righteousness. Whenever we try and do it on our own, we're just like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Sowing fig leaves, thinking that we've covered ourselves, but still ashamed. And, and I love that this, as he speaks about this, this is to heal their shame. He, he's saying, look, I already know that there's shame in your life. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. Come to me, let me clothe you, and you won't be ashamed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Man, only the power of God through the Holy Spirit allows us to see what matters. It is the Holy Spirit who, 
in other places in Scripture, is also referred to as a salve or an oil or an ointment, that He is the one that allows us to see what matters. He's the one that gives us the eyes to see the Scriptures and understand them in a deeper way, to see what we're to be praying for in one another's lives. Only through Him do we actually receive true sight. And in verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. His correction for them is because he loves them. He wants to see them doing better. He's not just going to let them keep going this direction. He wants them to do something. But I also think it's cool that here's this church that has zero passion, zero excitement, no zeal at all. And he says, but you know what? I want you to be zealous in your repentance. I want you to get excited about changing your direction. Be zealous and repent. And that word zeal means an on-fire burning zeal. It's time for you to be hot for the things of the Lord, to get fired up about who He is. In verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will dine with him and he with me. I think this is the Amazing insight to the character of Jesus. Because remember who we're talking about here. This is God of the entire universe. The amen of all things. The beginning, the one who created all things. And if he wanted to, he could make you believe. He could kick that door in and go, you're going to follow me. He could do it. But instead what we see is a gentleman knocking on the door of every person's heart individually. (sighs) Please let me in. That God, God would stand outside His church and knock to get in. That He would stand outside the life of each one of us individually and ask to be invited in powerful. And it's important that we know this is the God that we serve. I've talked to people who say, well, why doesn't God just make things good again? Why doesn't he just take sin out of the world? Why doesn't he just make people believe? This is why. Because he knocks upon the door of our heart to say, I want you to invite me in. And if you do, I'm going to come in and dine with you. And that idea, we lose it a little bit because in the Hebrew culture especially, and that was a personal thing. You didn't eat with just anybody. You ate with close friends and family, and that was it. And, and when you invited in somebody into that place, man, it was, they were like being adopted into the family. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to dine with you. We're going to have that closeness, that personal connection. But you've got to open the door. You've got to let me in. And he goes on to say that this relationship is going to continue through eternity. Sitting down upon his throne. And I don't, I can't even understand that. I mean, that, this is one of those things that I'm just like, I don't get that, God. I just trust you of what it means. He says, just the way I sat down on my father's throne. And the idea isn't like he's taking God's place. It's sitting down with that same authority of God. And he goes, to those who overcome, you're going to sit down on my throne with me. You're going to sit down in that same place of authority. Us? Yeah, us. I don't get it, but I like it. I love it. 
Now, with each church, I tried to stop and go, okay, so we see how this looks as a church. We know what this church looks like as a body of believers, right? But what does it look like in a family or in a marriage or in it for an individual? Um, I think it's pretty, pretty simple in, along with the other churches. And I think probably the, the best place I could describe it is in a marriage of what it might look like. This is usually the people that, again, they think they've arrived. It could be a whole family. We're there. We're paying the bills. And it doesn't mean that they're in a wealthy place. Maybe what they think of as we've arrived is that this is as good as it's going to get. See, that's a hopeless place too. It's just not going to get any better than this. So there we go. We've arrived. Like it or not, this is it. And in that same way, it's just this hopeless, oh well, nothing to strive for, nothing to work for, nothing to be excited about. This is it. And when that happens in a family or when that happens in a marriage, it's all downhill. Because there's no passion, there's no excitement, there's no joy toward the Lord or towards each other. Things are just lukewarm. And anything that would bring in excitement, that's seen as immaturity. That's seen as, oh, days passed, days gone by. And while they would say again and again, we're fine, we got this, we're good, we have need of nothing, they don't even know. They are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The answer is the same. Got to come to Jesus for the things that matter. To have that zealous repentance, humble ourselves, admit we've been going in the wrong direction, and be zealous in our repentance. Um, and I think for a marriage, you know, it, it's, it's the simple things. It's praying together. It's reading a little bit of the Word together. And it doesn't have to be an hour-long prayer session, right? Make it honest. Make it real. Make it quick. That's okay. But seek the Lord together. And, and what the Lord is calling them to do, this church to do, would be the same for a marriage, to say, let's see what the Lord has for us. What's the direction? What's the ministry? What's something that we can be on fire for the Lord for together? awesome. On an individual level, I think that probably the, the greatest thing that we can take from all of this, again, is he stands at the door and knocks. And maybe that is for us as believers going, I know there's things in my life I need to deal with. I know there's things that I personally, I've been going in the wrong direction, and I can sense God knocking on my heart saying, it's time to change that. You let me into that area of your life. You let me into that place, and I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to take you into this depth of our relationship you didn't even know was possible, but you've got to let me into that place. I'm knocking on that door. You've got to let me in. Or maybe it's for somebody here that has not given their lives to the Lord, and he is knocking upon your heart going, let me in. Give me your heart. Give me your life. And today's the day to do that. That if you've not asked Jesus into your heart, if you've not given him your life, open up the door of your life and of your future to him and let him change your life completely. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the power that's in your word and for this church of Laodicea to challenge us, Lord, to not be complacent, to not be fearful, to not be those that are just lukewarm, but instead, God, may we be those that are fired up for you. Lord, we have not arrived. Heaven is still ahead of us. There are still lives to be touched and people to be saved and your gospel to go out. God, use us however you choose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stay.